I got a pre-show topic for you. This, this isn't a this isn't even like a show topic because I don't know how deep this is gonna go. So it could go very. deep. We could be here for a good like twenty minutes before anybody hears the. Um, I mean, can I even remember how our intro music goes? Hold on. It's been so long. Probably do, not. Do 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 do. No. Yeah. 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 Okay. Like before that. they hear that that uh-huh. lovely rendition, uh-huh. uh, we we might be here a while. All right. What is it? They won't even know who we are. They're just gonna be like, "Who are these people talking?" <laughs> no one's introduced themselves. Like we're just, just pre show talking about mm-hmm. talking about cameras. Who knows? Well, I'm Daniel. If anyone's wondering, <laughs> that's not true. That's gonna be very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. I went. I went on a trip to call to Colorado to go see uh, Jimmy World and Manchester Orchestra Red Rocks, and it was awesome. And whilst whilst there, we did some other things. I finally went to the top of Pikes Peak, which I've never done before. Really? Despite I've having never done that, I know it's like I've been to Colorado so many times, but I've never been to the top of Pikes Peak. Did you, drive, did you drive? Did you Yeah, up we there? drove the road up oh, there, and that that's was fun. That was crazy because you didn't have your own car. What were you driving? I was driving a Subaru Outback. Uh, that's, which, a, that's an appropriate Colorado. Yeah. Vehicle. Yep. <laughs> They're like, "What do you want to drive?" And I was like, "Which one's the most Colorado we in?" Yep. And the Subaru. <laughs> Anyway, that thing was driven by somebody who didn't know how to go down a mountain, and the brakes were warped. Yeah, yeah, that that happens. Um, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to stop you. Uh, like when you're going down the mountain, they used to stop you periodically to check your brakes and make sure they weren't over. Yeah, on Pike at going down Pikes Peak, there was one stop going mm-hmm. down, and we stopped, and I, my brakes were like 127. Yeah, because that Subaru, whenever you put it in manual mode and you're like just paddle shifting. Like even on a five percent grade, if you set it in first gear, mm-hmm. it basically holds at twenty five wow. miles an hour. <laughs> like I don't know whatever they're doing with the transmission to you know keep it in gear. Yeah, it was great. I like barely used my brakes. That's great. And I'm a, that's and I'm, how you're supposed to do it, though. I mean, yeah. you, even if it's an automatic, like you just put it in manual mode and easy yep. peasy. But the the Prius in front of us did not know how to put it into mm-hmm. manual mode, and they, she was like, "You're gonna have to pull aside." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, "What's well, the hottest brakes you've seen today?" And it was like seven hundred and eighty degrees. What? <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't even know that was possible. But they have like big vans and sure. you know, that sort of thing, like buses. And so it's probably heavy load that, you know, yeah. not like a passenger car. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but like I took a bunch of pictures and, but you know, I wanted to travel light. And so I brought my X-T3 instead of the X-H2S. Mm-hmm. I packed the X-H2S and I was like, hmm, we have a shoot. We have two shoots on Saturday, like the Saturday we get back. If I drop and break my camera... <laughs> It's going to be a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> like, even though I can get it fixed and I like bought the insurance on it because I can't help myself sometimes. I was like, I'm not going to like, I, we're going to be out. Like, it's going to be been a bad time. It would have been a huge problem. Yeah. And so that's why I didn't take it. You would have had to emergency buy a new <laughs> XH2S. <laughs> oh, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, man. Anyways. So I brought the XT3. And before I left, I was like, Daniel, should I bring the 23 millimeter or the 16 millimeter? I remember. Because as you know. These lenses are my children, mm-hmm. and I love them dearly. But you can't bring all the lenses every time. It's similar to how when you go on vacations, you just can't bring all the children every time. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes you got sometimes you got to leave them home. <laughs> Sorry, Timmy. <laughs> I guess I probably could have crammed all the lenses in my bag. Now I'm thinking about it, but I didn't want. To. I brought. I was like two lenses. That's what you're bringing. I brought the 56 because that's like the newest one. Yeah. And I was like, Daniel, 23 or 16. And you said 23. Mm-hmm. And I was already leaning towards 23. So I went 23. And the entire trip, I was like, freaking Daniel. 
make him bring the wrong lens. You wish you had had the 16. Dang it. I should have brought the stupid 16. Should have just taken the third stupid. lens, Lucas. God, this is all this is all Daniel's fault. And I'm going to just chastise him on the podcast. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. How dare you? <laughs> no. Of course, you're going to Colorado. You're going to take all these wide pictures of landscapes. Why didn't you have the 16 with you? Hey, that's what I'm saying. Would have been perfect. Like we we were I have some family up that way. And so we we spent the night in like Manatee Springs area and then had lunch with some of my family. And they're like, What if you canceled your hotel and just like come hung out with us for a night and a day? And I was like, Okay. And so we did. And so like I have some pictures of like us hanging out with our family and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And as mentioned before, if you're taking pictures of something that are is within like zero to six feet. The 16 millimeter is the right choice. And that was the situation I was in. And all my pictures were too close. <laughs> and then when I was on top of the mountain, I was like, I want like this big, wide, sweeping landscape. The 23 is too, too weird in the middle. Like you can take telephoto landscape photos and get some really interesting like isolations of certain subjects. Or you can take really big, wide landscape right. photos. And the 23 is neither of those things. <sighs> I guess you're just going to have to get rid of it. it no, Daniel, I'm dare you awful you know if you had taken that 16 you would have lost it somehow and then you would have had to buy the 16 a third time that would be horrible i can't imagine losing that thing again that'd be <laughs> terrible whenever we, we whenever we we uh, did that music video on saturday i like i made sure i looked at every single lens and i was like okay i got the got the 56 check got the 23 check got the 16 gave it a little kiss put it in my bag <laughs> made sure i had all of them did you check them again when you got home no <laughs> Lucas, you might not still have that lens. Don't say say that. (laughs) Curse me. So how was it shooting on the X-T3 now that you use the X-H2S so much? I mean, do you feel like it's like inferior in any way? The autofocus is so much worse than the X-H2S that I just had forgotten that it's not it's just not as good well you you probably didn't feel that way before you got the xh2s i mean you probably thought your autofocus was yeah i thought it was i thought it was pretty good and maybe just like less used to using it whenever whenever i got the xt3 i was very much especially because i was coming from a gx7 which panasonic camera that was contrast only most of my photo workflow was like a single point really you you think the subject single point reframe shoot yeah. And that's how I shot. And so that's how I shot most of the time on my X-T3. But towards the end of my time with the X-T3 and then moving into the X-H2S, I started using AFC instead of AFS. Mm-hmm. And that's how I use my X-H2S. I set it into wide track. And then I had the single point. And I will set the point on whatever I want to focus. And I'll still like click and reframe. But then it's continuously focusing. And it will track that thing in the photo yeah. you know, through it. Yep. And that works pretty good. It does not work pretty good on the X-T3. And like sometimes I'm having issues with face detect stuff. And I don't know. It wasn't, it was definitely not as good as I remembered, which was unfortunate. Yeah. And I think that that mostly occurred to me as I was going through all of my photos. And like whenever we went to Gatlinburg, I had a pretty high hit rate of things that I was happy with that were, you know, in focus or sharp. That was that on sort the X-H2S. Thing, on the X-H2S. And then this time, because it's like the same thing, you know, I'm just like snapping pictures. I'm... I am I'm hardly a photographer. Uh, I've sold one photo one time <laughs> on some one of those like whatever services. One it's, of those stock photos. Yeah, so I am a professional photographer. Yes. Barely. Barely. Is anyways. Uh and I like I just like I like, I like taking snapshots, right? And my percentage of good snapshots on the X H2S were just higher 
yeah uh, because of because of things that are like in focus and that sort of stuff so sounds like you're gonna have to get an xt5 one of these days i mean that's the clear upgrade path for me i would love an xt5 that camera looks great mm-hmm. it's it's basically the same size as my xt3 but huge improvement on the focus and on the sensor yeah just that price though yep just that price it's not that bad i mean it's basically the same price as an x100v <laughs> I don't like thinking about that. Yeah, which I like. I listen to our show. I you know go back and listen to the episode. Make sure like there's nothing weird or like we don't like. You do like to hear yourself and talk. I, you know maybe maybe I just want to hear some real intelligent fellows talking about camera gear. <laughs> maybe so. And you know make sure that it helps me remember like what we talked about. Because uh-huh. like I we release on Tuesday morning. We record on Tuesdays. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, oh yeah, we talked about that. I'm just gonna like maybe there's some uh, you know, like loop back on something. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember why. Oh, yeah, that's right. I think that we, uh, we've we mentioned the X100V consistently for the last, like, 10 episodes. I think we probably have, yeah. That, yeah. that one comes up a lot. We're on, like, a streak. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And this is going to uh, this is gonna extend that streak. Yeah, it just keeps going. Just I'm going to start trying not to mention it. I don't, I don't think I can. No, it's not going to work. No. So, uh, point, point is, X33 is still great. I love it. Not as good as autofocus as I remember. The batteries aren't as are just terrible. The mm-hmm. XH2S battery is so good. Those new yeah. two sixty five Ws. I mean, it's physically like twice the size, so it's not yeah. that surprising. But yeah, those batteries are much better. Lasts a really long time. Yeah, it's. Anyways, I we went to the Garden of the Gods, and I took some. We hiked through all the big you know rock formations, and I took a bunch of pictures. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, I realized that I didn't have raw turned on, which was very upsetting Aww. because I was like. I think I'm going to take some black and white pictures because <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. I'll, I'll like shoot an acro sweat. I rarely want that to be the only version. And I do think that like the in Lightroom, you can like load the camera profiles and, you know, pick your profile after the fact. Yeah. I don't think those are exactly the same as the out of box JPEGs from Fuji. I think the JPEG Fuji processing for film simulations is better. And so, like, if I know that I'm going to want a version that's Acros, I will try to shoot in Acros, and then I'll do the color version mm, yeah. with Lightroom processing. Okay. And I was very upset. That <laughs> was like, I did this one where it was this really big, tall shot, and like, there was a guy that was rock climbing, and he's like, "Little guy rock oh, climbing." And I'm like, man, oh, that would have been really cool in color. Yeah, I was going to like kind of like force the contrast and like to make him pop, and you know, get the mountain of the rock that's all red. And it was gonna be really cool. And I go to do it, and I'm like, oh, I only have the black and white version. <laughs> <sighs> they look so good and artsy and contrasty. Like if you shoot black and white in direct sunlight, it looks really good. Yeah. I was very upset. Yep. So that's, that was my, most of my disappointments. Missing and, out. And basically I didn't take any good pictures <laughs> and it all was terrible and I had the wrong lens and this is all your fault. This is, sounds like a, a great camera excursion you went on here. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I do like that I can fit my X-T3 in. I didn't do this, but like I can fit it in my little my little tech pouch, my little Peak Design tech pouch. Yeah, it's a surprisingly small camera. Yeah, it's it's just so compact. It's good to yeah. travel with. Anyway, nice. How long was that? Was that did I hit the pre-show target? Yeah, it's about ten minutes. Okay, all but, right. But there's one more topic to mention here, which you you mentioned that you went to a concert while you were there. Uh huh. And wasn't there some camera related content oh. about that concert? <laughs> I forgot about that guy. The opening band had their own photographer, as as frequently do. And usually, whenever I see a photographer for like a a band or whatever, it's just it's like a person wearing all black, and they have like double shoulder straps. Yeah, and they have two cameras, and of like course. one has like a long zoom, one has a wide zoom, or and something. It's always Canon. 
Yeah, they're like shooting Canon or Nikon, you know, one of those real camera manufacturers. And it's, it's they look, it looks very professional. Right. There was this guy and he was wearing, it was like for the opener band, he was wearing like a white shirt and khakis or something. Very, like I saw him walking around and I'm like, how did they let that guy in with an X-T4? That's interesting. He's got an X-T4 with a 27 millimeter pancake lens. Wonder what he's doing here. And then later, I see him on stage, and he's like the band's photographer, but the only gear he brought was a 27-millimeter 2.8 and an X-T4. I mean, that's confidence. <laughs> and he's like shooting video, and he's like <laughs> running out on stage, and I didn't know people's angles could bend that way. And he's like holding the camera out in front of him and like getting down like within two feet of the ground, but his knees don't actually touch the ground. He's doing all this crazy spaghetti work. And it was... I was I just couldn't stop watching. Him. I mean, I think you were watching a master at work there for sure. Half of my videos of that band, which I don't really shoot much videos of the band, so like when I'm at a concert, I might take like one or two videos, I mean, just like thirty seconds, just enough to remember it, just enough to remember it, and that's it. I think I took like eight videos total during that concert, and five of them were was was of that guy and his XT4 just running around because it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, I kind of think you need to get on their Instagram or something and try and find some of those clips. I, I'm just curious to see what it looks like. I did. Like, while I was there, I was like, what's this band called again? <laughs> I looked at my Instagram. I'm like trying to find samples of his footage. <laughs> oh, boy. I hope he was shooting in like Classic Chrome or Assy or something. Yeah. I mean, he probably had it in Acros. That's what know. I'm talking about. <laughs> that plus R, make that sky dark. <laughs> it was... It was it was it was the wrong choice. <laughs> like I love Fuji, but no, <laughs> like just no. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel, and I'm Lucas, and we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. Daniel, yes. Would you categorize yourself as blazing free? I I would categorize <laughs> myself that way. <laughs> I'm now free blazing all over the place. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we talked about tripods last time, and I bit the bullet and bought the free blazer tripod from Small Rig. I'm glad that we didn't have to go deep into any of the links or suggestions in like the four paragraphs of show notes that we had, <laughs> and instead you just listened to Sage advice and bought. Yeah, just, just short circuit the whole thing. Yep. Just, yeah, just throw like, money at the problem. Why are we even talking about this? <laughs> free blazer <laughs> yeah my main motivation was that we had a bunch of shoots going on this past weekend uh, which i think we'll talk a little bit more about later yep. um and knowing that those were coming up just kind of felt like a good time uh, if i wanted to try out a new tripod then might as well do it whenever we're going to get a chance to actually try it and use it so. yeah so you have a good i don't know four or five days with this tripod. Oh, yeah. Which is tons of experience. Obviously enough time to have used every single feature. I mean, that is as much time as most YouTubers have with something before they review it, right? Exactly. You're basically an expert. I know that before you bought it, you thought I was an expert, but now you're an actual expert. (laughs) Uh, what What do you think of it? I've got some mixed feelings on it. I think overall I'm happy with it. It's nice and stable. It's much more substantial than my little Benro tripod. I don't have any concerns about putting my heavy camera rig on it. And, you know, it feels stable. And, like, that. that's all really good. I like that the footprint is pretty small. 
I was I was kind of concerned that, you know, this being like a heavier duty video tripod, it's going to take up a lot more floor space than the Benro one. And a lot of times we're setting up in someone's house or something. And so I was a little bit worried about that. But when I set them both up at the same height, the floor footprint was really like almost exactly the same. So from what I understand, the the spreader device can be secure to be more narrow Mm -hmm. if you need it to have a more narrow footprint. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can, which is an option that you don't really have on, on some of the smaller tripods that don't have spreaders. So I was screwing around with the height of that thing and those adjustable spreaders kept adjusting and it was super duper annoying. Yeah. So that, that's kind of my biggest complaint so far, I think is that, I feel like I just haven't learned how to use it yet because, you know, it is it is really simple in the sense that you have one latch on each leg that you can loosen and then that loosens the entire leg. So you can loosen those three latches and then move the whole thing up and down. That That's kind of like the, the key feature. And it's still a little fumbly to mm-hmm. loosen your two hands and three latches. And so you're trying to like loosen three latches, but still hold the tripod and then tighten three latches. Yeah. And I kind of don't quite figure out the right cadence for I that. I agree. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, I think that it's possible to get fast with it, but I feel like I just need to use it for, you know, 20 shoots and then I'll yeah. be good at it. Maybe it's a matter of like you undo one and then you grab the other two and then you set it. Maybe so. And then you lock those two and mm-hmm. then you use the last one to kind of initially level and then you can set the ball to yeah. level. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. I don't know. The, um, the level function thing was really cool where like you just kind of reach out and grab the pole underneath and then you can just... It's very stable, it seems, yeah. to set that ball into yeah, a level yeah. position. Because no matter what you do, you're not going to get the level exactly right. And so you, you no, have no. to you have to you're level. You're not going to get the level exactly right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you hit the level once you're done. And yeah, they give you a nice, like it's a pretty substantial handle that you can reach in there and loosen to loosen the uh, the bowl. And then there's a bubble level and, you know, you just, yeah. just get it right and tighten it. That's all easy. I mean, my main complaint with that is that I was trying to do it in a dark room, mm. and and I kept having to pull my phone out to see the bubble. Yeah, that's, that's kind a little, of a problem. It's a little annoying. They should make the like it's usually those bubbles are green. Why don't they like you know make them glow? Yeah, like, yeah, irradiate them a little bit. Yeah, that that sounds healthy. Yep. That's what I want right I mean, next to my face. Yeah, like you used to make camera gear <laughs> with radioactive lenses. Why don't we make our tripods yeah, with sounds, radioactive bubbles? Sounds perfect. Mm-hmm. My my only other thing I'll say on this is. Um, I, so they make two versions of this thing. They make the aluminum one and the carbon fiber one. I went with the carbon fiber one for two reasons. One of them worked out and the other didn't. So one reason was that I thought, I mean, I thought it looked cool. That, that's, that's a bonus reason. Yeah. Bonus reason. Um, but the, the feet on the carbon fiber one are better. They're much more substantial, like they're wider feet. And when I looked at that, I thought if I put that on like a floor, it's just going to be more stable. And, and that's, that's true. I think. The other thing, though, is that I thought maybe carbon fiber will slide a little bit easier. Like if I'm raising or lowering oh, the sure, tripod, yeah, you yeah. know, it seemed, you'd think it would slide better. And I mean, I don't have the aluminum one to compare to, but I'll just say I wasn't super impressed with that aspect of it. It's it's fine going up and down, but I didn't feel like it was like excessively smooth or anything. Man, you just got to lube that thing up. Maybe so. Put some camera grease on there. Yeah, yeah. Camera grease, whatever that is. <laughs> just put some camera grease on it. I don't know. I think I think ultimately my four or five day review of this thing is I'm happy with it. I think it was a good purchase, and I th- I do think it's an excellent value for the money. I mean, yeah. I'm going to be using this for a lot of shoots uh, going forward, and I'm I'm really happy to have it. But I do think that I can tell that it's a $250 tripod and not an $800 tripod or a 
$20,000 tripod. Yeah, yeah. So I, I understand why people buy the really expensive ones because some of these issues that I have, I doubt you have on those sorts of things, but pretty happy with it. So I would be very hesitant to put, say, like a, a $80,000 camera rig on a $300 tripod. Sure. So to me, it seems like your tripod as far as like value and construction should be a certain percentage of your oh, camera rate in, cost. Interesting rule. Yeah. Like and that. so like if you have an $80,000 camera set up, maybe you have a $15,000 tripod. I think that I mean, maybe, it's at least justifiable. Maybe it's point, like right? 10% roughly. And so, you know, now that you got this tripod, you can justify, you know, like a three to 500 or $4,000 camera. Rate. Oh, is that how that works? I, I, I like it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Sounds, sounds good. There's got to be some math here where where that works out. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, tell me about your P-Touch, brother. (laughs) (laughs) This is the piece of camera gear with the most unfortunate name, but I also love it. And it is the Brother P-Touch. What's it for? What does it do? Just going to leave that there for a second. No, it's fine. What does it do? Uh huh. So this is a label maker, Mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, not something that you're going to find covered on Petapixel or whatever, but... Um, it's just a little device with a keyboard and you can type in your name or the name of a piece of gear and press a button and it prints out a little label for you. Man, until we started doing shoots with more than just me and you, I never really thought about labeling my gear and oh man, (laughs) whenever I'm in a group of people and they're like, oh here, let me help you like tear down your light or like put away your softbox or help kind of like oh, we have to get out of here in an hour so let's all work together and like tear all this gear down oh man i'm like i'm something's not going to end up in my car yep i'm going to lose a 16 millimeter lens and like I, there's just so much happening like how do we know that everything's going to get where it goes yep and it's like organizing that is so hard, especially when there's a bunch of people touching the gear and like everyone mm. needs to have a role and organization, all this stuff. But labeling makes that way easier. Yeah, yeah you you've got to have those other people involved because it's you, you you start doing a big enough shoot and it's too much for you to do on your own. Especially because like a lot of times when we finish shoots, one of us is copying footage. That's like our our full mm-hmm. job is just copying yep. footage. And so you have a limited number of people to do things. You need other people to help. But yeah, it's like we've got so much gear and you and i have a lot of the same gear because Mm -hmm. one of us buys something and then the other is just like oh that one works i'll get that one too but then how do you tell them apart we each each have a Cobb 60 light how do you Mm -hmm. tell them apart well mine has a sticker on it with my last name (laughs) yes it does (laughs) and it's in an orange case yep yep (laughs) so before we had a big shoot this past weekend and before that i went through and labeled a bunch of my gear that didn't already have labels on it and i got a ton of use out of this label maker and I felt like it was really worth having that because, I mean, you know, I, I've done the thing that you do in the past where, you know, just get a piece of masking tape and write my name on it, but that gets old fast. I learned that from my mother, <laughs> and it's still effective. <laughs> it works, but, you know, you've got you got a limit on how small you can go with that. And also, mm-hmm. like, after the 20th thing that you've labeled that way, it just gets old. Yeah, you start spelling your name wrong, <laughs> or, like, you start getting creative with it, and then no one can read it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, w- I went into our recent shoot with, I think everything, everything I brought was labeled and I think it helped. I think it did too. We, we both left that shoot and when I went through my gear the next day, I think the only item of yours that I had was a uh, variable ND filter, right? which, you know, ironically is one of the few items that you can't label because there's no place to put a label on it. 
It's very true. Yeah. I usually just uh, etch it into the glass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just like right along well, the edge. It's like it's like <laughs> metadata on your clips at that point too, right? You can yep. see it and resolve. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. Yeah. It, I don't know if you remember those like calculator engravers in school where the, they were like, we just engrave your name on the back of your calculator. No, no. no it was like a pen and you plug it in and like it would it would just etch it in just ever so slightly. Oh, interesting. No, I, I didn't know about that. Well, I think you could use that to label Perfect. your your ND filters. Yeah, don't try that at home. <laughs> or do and then write in and let us know how it went. Good. Not <laughs> Good liable. Point. Good point. <laughs> anyway, I think that actually leads into an interesting topic though cuz you know, when you label something like a stand, sure, you put a label on it and you throw that in your car and you're good. But we we just did this pretty complex shoot with a lot of gear, a lot of supplies and stuff. And as I was preparing for that, it kind of made me think about all the different things we use to transport stuff to and from a shoot and what we've been happy with and why we use different things. I think the most ideal form of labeling would be like the case is labeled. And then when you open it up, the location of everything where it goes is labeled and those things are labeled. Man, some some of that stuff that we got. So when we when we shot the TV show pilot last summer, you know, a bunch of that gear had been rented. And some of the stuff had that where like you'd have the foam in the top of the case. And if you pulled that foam out, there was a picture like a, like an actual like photograph of everything that goes in the case. That was that was great. You know what? I think I might need to do that. <laughs> I think everything ended up where it was supposed to go, but mm-hmm. I did open up every single case of mine, which there's only like three of them. But I opened up, I mean, was there more than that? Anyways, whatever. I opened up every one of my cases and I took inventory before I loaded it into my car whenever yeah. we left. Yeah. Well, but and, like, and also to, like sometimes, like if I'm working with your stuff, I don't always know how stuff goes in the case. And so I just kind of have to guess and hope I get it right. But if you had a diagram you know, that shows you you know, this charger goes here and all that. Then yeah, that's what great. I was going to say. I put away that, that Modulus 100X light that you got, mm-hmm. and it was like Tetris. Yeah. And where where does what go? Yep, yep. Got bend the L, this part of the, the U thing <laughs> to make sure it fits in like an L instead of a straight. And and sometimes it's hard, to, it's hard to make everything fit in those cases. You know, you got to get clever with it. I hope I figured it out. Yeah, I don't know you, if you looked you at it. Okay, I, I've checked all my cases. You got that one Sweet. right. Sweet. So. Um, yeah, let's, let's start there though with, uh, you know, with using some of those plastic cases. Cause that's something that we've kind of both gotten into since we did that film shoot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think whenever I was doing photography and video stuff, just, you know, casually for fun, that's not something I ever thought about. Cause most of the time when I buy gear, it would come with like a little fabric case or something, or I just think, you know, I'll just throw this in my bag. But then when we did that film shoot, we had a lot of stuff that was in, you know, like Pelican style, you know, hard plastic cases, hard plastic cases with foam inserts where the foam inserts were set. Yeah. And you know, those things seem expensive and bulky and heavy, but yep. I mean, what's the, what do you think is the reason for using that stuff? I mean, it's cause you, you can chuck it into a van, you can easily label it and everything is a relatively consistent size. And so it's easy to like bring things in and out. And I mean, sometimes whenever you're moving between shoots, there's a lot of stuff that's going to go into that car. Yeah. At like more than you think sometimes. And in being able to know that you can you can get it from A to B without it breaking mm-hmm. is is key. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important and I think it also kind of helps some with the with the idea of making sure you get everything cuz Yeah, everything has a home. You know, if you if you open up a case to pack up a piece of gear and you have like large cavities in that foam that aren't filled that's kind of like suspicious you know and like maybe i'm missing something that's supposed to go in this case and so i think that it's kind of a good like self-documenting thing yep and so that's really useful and i i also 
I find it really helpful in terms of being able to instruct somebody else on what to get. Because mm-hmm. if I'm out at the site where we're shooting, I can tell somebody, hey, there's a blue case. I need the blue case. Or find the case that has this name on it and bring yep. that. And that's just, that saves a lot of time. Yeah, that is a lot easier. It helps keep you organized, that sort of thing. Yeah. I've been buying for those cases just the the cases from Harbor Freights, which are just shockingly cheap. Yeah. I think they're the brand name is like Apache. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're Apache cases. And like my orange, whatever, 24 by 18, I think was like $25 or something. <laughs> yeah. They're like... Uh, probably too cheap for what I put in them Mm -hmm. and maybe I should consider the tripod approach as well that the case should be some percentage cost of the gear. Depends on what you're putting in there I think. Yeah probably depends. Yeah depends. Like well that's what I'm saying. Depends on what you're putting in there. Mm -hmm. Anyways you had a better experience with some higher quality like cases and foams. I Yeah I I, I did. I mean I I do want to say I think that those Harbor Freight cases are a really good deal and I I have several of them too and I mean like one thing that you and I both use those for is an Amaran Cobb 60 yep. light. That's a $200 light. Yep. I think I feel fine about putting that in a $25 case. I also use it for my Ninja and that works great. Yeah. That's yeah. like, I have everything that I need for the Ninja and all the mounting gear and all the batteries. And it's just mm-hmm. like right here in this one thing. I mean, these cases are not poor quality. They lock securely. They have plenty of foam. Yep. I mean, they, they feel fine to me. And I think if you can get one in the size you want, if you have a Harbor Freight near you, I think those are a great option. I mean, I, I think probably a lot of people don't know about those and they think I've got to spend, you know, $80 to get a good case. Yeah. Like it's got to have a bird on the side and it has to cost a hundred bucks. Yeah, exactly. So those Harbor Freight cases are great. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got limited experience with the other ones. I mean, when we did the film shoot and had the rented gear, most of that was in Pelican cases. Yeah. Super expensive. Um, Pelican's obviously a really good brand. I recently got some cases from B&H made by Nanuk. That's N-A-N-U-K, which is a Canadian brand. And they're basically on par with Pelican. A. (laughs) Good good contribution there. (laughs) They're they're pretty much on par with Pelican. And uh, normally not something that I'd want to spend the money for, but they were on like a 50% off sale. And so I was like, I'm going to get a couple of these to see how they are. And the the ones that I got are, they're they're less deep than our normal cases, so they're not useful for too much of the gear I have. But I've got some stuff that does fit pretty well in them, so I, I set one up for a wireless system and used it. And I'll say what I noticed about it is that the foam on it seemed like it was higher quality. So these cases generally have what's called like pick and pluck foam, where it's like a it's like a grid of little foam squares, and you can decide how big of a cutout you want and you can kind of rip out that foam, you know, in a certain pattern. To... This is the most horrible, annoying experience. It really is. Yeah. I hate, like... I hate touching the foam. <laughs> you just don't like the way it feels? I don't, I don't like it. It just makes, it makes my teeth hurt. <laughs> it's not like styrofoam. It's a soft foam, but I, I get where you're coming from. Yep. And, and it's kind of annoying trying to lay out the case, get it just right. And if you if you try and put two different cavities in the case and you put them too close together, then like the you know it doesn't have enough stability. It's like you've got to leave enough foam in the case for it to still have enough strength and all that's annoying. The Nanak case, I noticed the foam was a lot harder to tear out, which you know was annoying while I was setting it up. Right. But I have a feeling it's going to hold up better because it seems like. It seems like I'm less likely to have more foam break off over time. You know what I mean? It so. does feel like an art into itself. It really does. And I, I kind of wonder, like, 
I know there are better ways to cut foam. Like, I wonder if you can buy foam that's not in those little cubes and use like a, you know, people use like a hot knife or whatever to cut mm-hmm. foam. And I wonder if that's better. I don't know. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Have you considered like 3D printing some sort of like TPU soft Ooh. kind of thing? And then you could just like set your stuff in it. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. You could yeah. have like little mountains that kind of like hold everything in place. Well, you know, what? another thing that's interesting. I don't know if you remember from some of those Pelican cases, but. Sometimes you get ones that don't have foam, but instead they sort of have like a very stiff version of those fabric dividers that you get in camera bags. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? So like some, sometimes instead of having the foam, you just have like a grid inside the box. And honestly, for a lot of gear, I would prefer that because it seems like it's going to hold up a lot better. You can reconfigure it if you need to. I don't know. I kind of want to look into that and see if you can buy the, like, it's kind of like a camera snoop, but for a case, I kind of want to see if you can buy some of those aftermarket. I got. I, I'm just gonna take an aside here uh, on two things. One, it feels like everyone has settled around on those like divider things that have the Velcro and like there's Velcro on the bottom and Velcro on the side. Mm-hmm. And like I've had to get really good at like you squeeze it and like push it all the way down, and make sure the bottom is secure. Yeah. And then you have to make sure the it's sides hit. You don't want like the sides to hit before the bottom. It's a real pain. And like every single camera bag has these stupid Velcro whatever, and they're like customize it however you want. I hate them so much. The Peak Design ones are very good. I still hate them. And I just wish there was like a <laughs> some other solution other than like Velcro all these things together. Make, make, make like an insert per camera. I don't know. Yeah. Like I, I want one that's that doesn't require me to like remove a bunch of Velcro and put it back yeah. together. I, I get what you're going with that. I hate that too. So. I don't really have a better solution, but yeah. there's just, it's just... It, it is an annoyance oh, for sure. Yeah. The other thing, um, possible solution for those cases... Uh, you could cast your gear in Jello. <laughs> that that feels like a single use thing, but at least you get a snack <laughs> yep, out yeah, of it. Like you, you put it in the fridge, uh-huh. and like with the case and everything, let's set. You take it out, you know, you get there, you open it up, you pull your thing out, get a scoop of Jello. Oh yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, perfect. Mm-hmm, not for summer shoots. <laughs> no, <laughs> you have some sticky camera gear. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yep, mm-hmm. that's how I keep all my lenses safe. Yep. Oh. <laughs> That's why you had to buy that, rebuy that 16. Yep. No, it's, it's just use, use weather sealed gear for, <laughs> for jello casting. <laughs> anyway, plastic cases are a win. I label all mine with my name as well as the name of the item inside. And the main reason I do that is so that I can tell somebody, you know, go grab the one that says Molus X100 or whatever. Yeah. It's really handy. Oh, I called that modulus earlier. I can never remember the name of that light. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what, what other stuff do you use to transport gear? Well, usually I uh, have a backpack, and so I I'll like throw all of my all of my light stands and C stands and everything into the car. Mm-hmm. I transport my soft boxes and mat box and like things like that in the bags that they came in, or they fold up and yeah. that sort of thing. And, yeah, That's all pretty that. straightforward. Sandbags, you just throw them in there because mm-hmm. you know what are you going to do? Put those in a in a case, uh, and so it's basically just a camera bag. And this last time around, I actually brought two camera bags because I wanted to separate out my like laptop and mom, you know, all those accessories, make them a little easier to get. I've talked about it a thousand times. I have that Peak Design 45 (laughs) liter because I can fit all of my camera gear in it. And I can also use it as a travel bag and it's super versatile. And I love it. And a lot of times when we do interview shoots, it feels like you fit like 90% of your gear in that bag. I can fit an entire interview setup in that bag. Yeah. I've started bringing my Amaran Cobb x whatever 60x in its own little separate cute case because i have the case and it's already like in it yeah but i can take all that out and pack it into one of the cubes and then i can condense an interview setup down into just 
my peak design bag. Yeah. It's like you, you have the bag and then you'd be carrying some stands under your arm or something. You'd have yeah, everything. exactly. And like, if we're going to use the big light, which is the, the VL one fifty, uh, you know, that has its own box, which that light, that Godox VL150, the the case that it comes in is fantastic. Yeah. That's one of the few cases where it's like, I don't, I wouldn't really have a desire to mm-hmm. put that in anything I else. I mean, it's, it's got like the, this, you know, fabric exterior and it's like a hard thing and it zips and it mm-hmm. opens and it's got, everything is like perfectly arranged. Yep. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. With the shoot that we shot on Saturday, uh, was the first time that, that, that light had met its match. Yeah, I've never had to run that thing at a hundred percent and felt like I needed more mm-hmm. light. We had that and uh, and my hundred watt Molo X one hundred, and it's still we could have used more light. Yeah, we needed more light. We needed like some three hundred Ds or something. Yeah, finally happened. Finally happened. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I use a camera backpack too for a lot of gear. For this shoot recently, I had a bunch of bunch of camera backpacks because I brought several cameras with me. Some of them that I borrowed from other people. Um, yeah, you have like this deep bench of all the different camera backpacks you've tried and yeah. gave up on for one reason or another, and they just start slowly bringing themselves back out because yep. you have all those extra just, cameras. Just need them all. Um, but the one thing I think is interesting that maybe maybe some people haven't thought of is the doctor bag that I use for my camera rig. Oh, yeah, you should talk about that. Yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting topic. So when, when we do shoots like this, and even now for interviews, I like using a more rigged up camera. So I have a V mount plate uh, with a V mount battery and have my monitor on there and, you know, whatever else I need along with my, uh, with my camera. But I like having that single power source. I like the extra weight and all that stuff, but it's always been this frustration that, you know, if you want to use a camera rig, it's like you pack your camera away in your bag. And then when you get to the shoot, you have to build up this whole rig and it's, you know, it, it can take you a while to get everything set just the way you want, get all the wires plugged in. Right. And, I got really tired of that, and so I, fa- I started doing research because I figured somebody has to have solved this problem, and it turns out you can get bags that are kind of made to deal with that. They go by different names, but the main like generic term for them is basically a doctor bag, and you know, if you imagine like an old school doctor, you know, on like an old western or something, mm-hmm. walking around with a black bag, you know, to somebody's house for a house call, it's like that kind of bag, so it looks like a big purse. And it opens from the top and it's just this big cavity inside. And so the, the idea behind it is that you can just take your camera rig and just set it down inside the bag, zip it up, and you can just carry your camera that way instead of having to take the rig apart. Who who makes the one that you have? The one that I have is made by... Is it Satchler? It is Satchler. Yeah. I guess that's how you pronounce that. There's a couple of brands that make them. Um the the other one I had been looking at was made by Tenba. They have this Cinelux series. It looked pretty good. I got the Satzler one on sale from B and H. It was a uh, open box, and so I got it for like half nice. price, um, and that was worth it. But you know, if you're using a mirrorless camera, like most people, you know, at our level probably are. The main problem you're going to have, I think, with a rig is just that it's it, most of our camera rigs are very tall, especially if you have the monitor on top. And so you'll need to look for a bag that's tall enough to work for your rig. And mine isn't quite tall enough. I have to take the monitor off of the rig to put it in the bag. That's a shame. But what I've discovered is I can still leave the monitor plugged in and I just pull it off the um, the bracket that it's on and just kind of set it down in the bag. Have you considered that if you had a lower profile monitor solution that maybe it would fit i i have considered that mm-hmm. yeah yep. yeah just, may, just... may i interest you <laughs> in the uh s- small rig um 
monitor handle. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to cave. With the record button? I'm going to cave sooner or later because that would solve that problem. But regardless, even even with that issue, I've been really liking that bag the, t- the few times I've used it because I can just show up to the shoot, unzip it, pull the camera out. I don't have to do any rigging. It's it's a neat solution. It's not, not perfect for everything. I mean, you know, you wouldn't use that for travel. That's what you use a camera backpack for. But for something like this where it's a big shoot, I think that's a, a good way to go. Yeah, that's pretty good. I like it. I also like my pig design bag. I, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> Just throw that out there. <laughs> Thank, thanks for clarifying. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, that's basically it, right? That's like all the transport. We had so much gear. We did have so much gear. So it, it was a big shoot. Probably one of the most planned out things we've done, I think. And, it's and, up there. Yeah. Yeah. And I know probably next week we'll talk a little bit more about how we planned it. But yeah, we had a lot of gear. I mean, I was I was pulling out every case I had. You know, I, was, I had some stuff in a bag. Well, you also like borrowed some things, and so you had, we had two A7Threes, a Lumix S5 Mark II, two XH2Ss, and an XT3. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that everything? And there was someone had an A7R4, but you didn't have to pack that. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had I had an extra seventy to two hundred lens that I don't mm-hmm. normally have. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of gear. It was a lot. It was yeah. a lot of gear. I was pulling out like plastic ammo boxes to use to carry batteries, <laughs> <laughs> all kinds of stuff. That's low-key a good way to carry batteries. It honestly was. I, I saw I was like, I need to get some of these just specifically for camera gear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, like, maybe one of those batteries just decides to go. <laughs> if it's in an ammo box, <laughs> maybe that's okay. Maybe. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Well, yeah. uh, I mean, let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff we did for the shoot. Sure. So we're preparing for this thing, and neither of us shoot regularly with a full-frame camera. And so we don't have any full-frame-sized Endies. Yeah. And we're going to shoot a music video outside in July for some reason. Yep. And during the day, you know, during the day, sun's still up. And for some reason, I'm like, Daniel, we have to shoot log because the colors <laughs> and the dynamic range. <laughs> and so we need ND because we, because we can't shoot at base ISO because base ISO is like 800 or yep. 640 or 1250 depending upon yep. what camera it is and and you know we got to get that look so we're not going to be shooting everything at f22 oh, yeah. i don't want the i don't want the drumsticks to look like and they need to have some natural motion blur, yeah. right uh-huh. so you know we, there's a lot of movement it's not like it's a static frame we can't yep. just crank the shutter and so we're in this weird situation where it's like I, we need a bunch of 82 millimeter ND filters for like these three other cameras. Yes. Yeah, yeah, filters that you and I do not need for anything we own. Yes. And so it's like, what is the, like, what's the cheapest fixed ND filter that I get that's not going to color shift or not, or color shift in a consistent way that I can correct? Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to buy KNF variable NDs because those, oh, oh. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with cheaper variable NDs is that as you adjust the ND up and down, you get like weird cross shapes on the image and mm-hmm. you get color shifts and it's a problem. And you can get color shifts differently based upon the angle of the polarizers on the ND. And yeah. we've done that before where it was like the same camera, same lens, same ND filter. Mm-hmm. And this one was rotated 90 degrees from that one. And so the, the purple shading and the green color shifting were in opposite. It was just yeah. a nightmare to color yeah. match that and, footage. And this is why both of us have since bought more expensive variable NDs for our right. own cameras. Yeah, with like hard stop on, yeah. on the high end and that sort of thing. Anyway, so it's like if we're going to try to go cheap, we got to go got to go with fixed 
And so then it's like, how much fixed ND do I need for a full frame camera that I've never shot with? Yeah. Well, that's not true. We've shot with like the Sony's, but have never like shot outside in S log yeah, two. We're not as familiar with them as we are with our own. Right, stuff. right. And so like, man, I like I went for the ten stop because I was like, we can always bump the ISO a little bit. Yep. I don't want to not have enough. And you know, you can get it's like go from six stops to ten stops. There's not really anything in between. Yeah. And we didn't want to buy like tons of filters. We just wanted mm-hmm. to get the minimum that we needed. Yeah. And so it ended up being the ten stops was way too much. Mm-hmm. And so like for some of the cameras, we had to crank the shutter and just take it off. Yeah. Or like shoot at a high, at a higher f stop. I guess a six stop may have been better. Yeah, six stop probably would have been better. Um, you know, for for like for one of my one of the. Sh- one of the parts that I shot on the XH2S with like at a really low aperture, the ten stop was right, but I don't know. That was that was really hard. I wish it was easier to kind of nail down how many stops you need ahead of time and that sort of thing. Yeah. But if you don't shoot with it, and it's not your camera. Like you just can't know. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and you don't want to buy a bunch of gear you're not going to use. I mean, yep. it, if anything, maybe it's an argument for trying to use fewer cameras during the shoot. You know, you have sure. few, fewer variables to control for. For one, yeah, thing. like man, just shooting with something that you know even if it's like this isn't the best camera for like i could rent a better camera mm-hmm. but like shooting with a camera you know is off you're often going to get better results than shooting yeah. with a camera that you don't yeah because like you know how to expose and how to use it and like what you need yeah i think that's true yeah so that was that was really hard and then i mentioned it was you know outside in july when all these cameras i was i was for sure thinking that we were going to have an overheating problem. I thought so, too. I, I thought either the lights or the cameras, something was going to overheat. Yep. I was like, it's guaranteed. It's mm-hmm. 100 degrees outside. One of these cameras is going to overheat, and yep. it's going to be the Sony. Because <laughs> like the Lumix has a fan in it. Yeah, it does. And the mm-hmm. X-H2S is perfect. Camera of the year, 2022. <laughs> See, and I was worried about the X-H2S because Fuji sells the fan accessory. And it's so I was like, the do. fact that they sell this makes me think there's a situation where you need it. And if there's any such situation, it's when you're shooting in hundred degree weather outside. Yep. And like we shot that, we shot like a five minute continuous take, five minute break, yeah, and then five minutes again. And what we shot for, I don't know, like an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. None of the cameras overheated. Yeah, yeah, everything went. I mean, we we took some steps. So on all the cameras, we had the screen pulled out mm-hmm. during the shooting. Except for mine, I didn't do that, and it was fine. Yeah, I didn't do it either. Um, but but like the Sony's, we did, which I think oh, yeah, I think sure. we needed to on those. And most of these cameras do have some sort of overheat setting in the in the menus, and we set that to you know whatever the highest setting was for each mm-hmm. camera, which is going to let the camera heat up a little bit more. Like I think on the Lumix, it actually like warns you about it and it says. You know, the camera may be uncomfortable to hold or maybe a burn risk or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't care. I'm not going to be the one using that camera. <laughs> we putting this thing on max. Don't tempt me with a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fine. Didn't have any trouble. I think that what saved us is the fact that there was that air-conditioned prep room next to the venue. That Where we really could store all the cameras until we were ready. Because that's what I was worried about is like, we were going to get there at 4 p.m. And those cameras were just going to sit in the heat until mm-hmm. seven thirty when we started shooting. And so at that point they were already gonna be heat soaked. Yep. But yeah, we we luckily had a small air conditioned room at the venue and so we just shoved all the camera gear in there and let I it stay was in there. Fully prepared to stick those cameras in a plastic bag and shove them in a cooler. <laughs> and I'm glad we didn't have to do that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but ha- happily happily impressed. I knew that the Lumix was going to be fine because it has that fan built in. Yeah. But just with the Fuji cameras, with those older Sonys, 
I was impressed that we didn't have any overheating problems. I agree. Problems. I, I think if, if we had been shooting like an hour-long interview out there, you know, if it was like a wedding was going to going on and we wanted to film the whole time, I think sure. that might have been a problem. Yeah. But doing short takes, and then we, we were having everybody turn the cameras off between takes, and I think all that helped, and yeah, we didn't have any trouble. Yep. And then uh, this was my first time to actually use the, uh, the S5 Mark II for more than, you know, like five minutes. Yeah. How'd and that go? I I kind of wish I could have filmed some on it. We gave it to somebody to shoot with, mm-hmm. and they remarked on how heavy it is. Uh-huh. Uh, I did have the 70 to 200 on there, which is an enormous yeah. lens. That's the Sigma 70 2.8. Yeah, that was a pretty big lens. And we had the DJI Raven Eye transmitter on top. So, I mean, that's, you know, a little bit of extra weight. Um, but it's a pretty heavy setup. Yeah, it, it, it is a pretty heavy setup. And... I didn't, whenever we were going through the settings, I didn't realize that you can't, sh- or I didn't, I had forgotten, you can't shoot 6K in 422 10 bit. Mm. I mean, if you want the 422 10 bit, you have to go all the way down to 4K, uh, yeah. 4K 30 or 4K 24. I imagine you can do it if you plug in a Ninja and use that. Yeah, but, yeah. You can do it externally, but you can't yeah. do it internally. Mm-hmm. And I don't know there's, there's some of those things where it's like you can't get like the best resolution with the best color yeah. settings outside of. Like, usually that limitation exists for non-stack sensors. Yeah. And so, it just reminded me how I'm just so happy that my X-H2S mm-hmm. can do 422 10-bit yep. 6K. Well, and it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, S1H Mark II might might uh, do away with some of those limitations. I think I ought to put a stack sensor in that thing. Yeah. But I, I got to say, using the S5 II just to configure it in the menus and stuff, I mean, I started, well, I didn't start, but... One of my previous cameras was a GH5 uh, from Panasonic, and it felt so good using the S5 II after the GH5 just because the menus are so familiar. Everything's really intuitive and easy to work with. I just, I, I don't know. I like where all the controls are on those cameras. I, I'm really impressed with Panasonic stuff. Yeah, I'm going give to a, give a second review here and say that coming from someone who's been using Fuji cameras for the last five years or mm-hmm. whatever, I think it's like five years, I couldn't find anything in those <laughs> menus. I, they're better than the Sony ones. The, the A7 III menus are horrible. Yeah, we're not the first people to say that, but those menus are just I terrible. Oh I know gosh. it's gotten better with newer Sony yeah. cameras. Like, I super can't find anything in the Sony menus, but I was looking for the setting to get rid of the focus window whenever mm-hmm. you manually manually focus on yeah. the Lumix. Man, I was looking at the thing for like five minutes. I'm like trying to Google how to find it. And people are like explaining to me what the what the focus window is. And I'm like, yeah, but how do you turn the freaking thing and, off? And see, I, I didn't have any trouble finding it because I've used to Panasonic yeah, menus. Yeah, exactly. You knew you knew exactly where it was. Yeah. So you kind of you get you basically you get used to them, right? Yeah. So like, you know, menu systems are menu systems. Mm. The Panasonic is maybe a little easier to navigate once you know it. Yeah. I don't know, man. I'm just really impressed with that camera. Like when I hold it, it feels like quality. It mm-hmm. feels well designed. It's got all the controls exactly where I want them. And I haven't really looked at the footage from this shoot yet, but some of the past stuff that we've edited from that camera, I just feel like the footage is really sharp and the colors are good. I mean, I'm very impressed with those cameras. Yeah, this is going to be my first opportunity to really dive into vlog. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that maybe had some vlog from the GH5 that we've worked with. Yeah, a very small amount. Yeah, just just a little bit. But this is gonna be my first, you know, modern Lumix camera with vlog. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to it because I know that like in diving into a lot of those gamma curves and like the ranges on the cameras, mm-hmm. I know that like the the range that they set for vlog is a little, uh, it's it's less. Like they'll they only rate it for like negative nine to nine stops instead of like up to twelve or fourteen on mm-hmm. both sides. 
And so I'm curious if the dynamic range is going to be different or like how the contrast is. And so really looking forward to grading that V-log footage and just see how it holds up compared to the F-log 2 stuff. Yeah. So that, and then whenever I held and used that camera, I was pleasantly surprised with just like with the wheel placement. That thumb wheel is like perfect. Yeah. As far Mm -hmm. as where they put it and everything's clicky. I think doing, when you have top buttons, doing them like, one, two, three from left to right instead of one, two, three from back to front is the correct way to do it's, it. It's easier to tell which one you're trying to yep, hit. Yeah, it's, it's so easy. Like the middle, that, middle, that ISO button has a little bump on it. Mm-hmm. So you just reach up and you can feel the ISO and then you go, no, if I go to the right, it's going to be whatever exposure and I go to the left, it's going to be white balance. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. They really, it really thought through like, how am I going to hold this camera? How am I going to use it? It's just, it just seems, it seems a very thought through yeah. and intentional. And I, I really appreciate that. I felt the same way about the GH5 when I had it. It just seemed very well designed. And not that the X-H2S is bad, but it felt like a slight step back in comfort and just in like button layout usability. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I think Panasonic's just a little bit ahead on that. Yep. Man, whenever we were there at the shoot, someone was like, why, why are the colors look all flat now? And... I got roped into explaining gamma curves to them, <laughs> which I every time I'm like, you, you got yourself into that. As to every single time I'm explaining gamut or gamma to somebody, I'm like, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be. I sound like I sound like a like a butthole or like a, just a know it all jerk, <laughs> and they don't really care. I know they said they wanted to know, but they don't mm-hmm. really want to know. Yep. And I need to stop talking. They, they want they wanted the thirty thousand foot explanation, and, and I, you were talking like you were on this podcast. I don't. <laughs> I don't have it. I don't. I like. I have no idea how to explain gamma and gamut <laughs> to somebody in one sentence each. <laughs> I feel like I should work on that. Yeah, you probably should. Maybe bring some note cards with you next mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, hold on. Let me pull up my Apple notes here. I got to figure it out. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it is it is funny working with that footage, though. I, I put everything in on that project yesterday into a Resolve project, but I didn't mm-hmm. assign LUTs to anything yet. Right. And, you know, I set up the multicam and stuff, and... I always think it's kind of fun to share the the big multicam grid with other people just to set show like, you know, look at all these cool shots. But I purposely have not sent that out because I wanted to apply the basic LUTs to it first. Oh, so yeah. people aren't like, oh, why is it all washed out? Yep. Because, yeah, nor, you know, people that don't work with this stuff don't understand that. And they just think that's how you filmed it and that's how it's going to look. And yeah. mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Whenever I was messing with the A7R4, it seemed like when you set the picture profile, it applies to the photo modes. Yeah. I was very confused by that. I'm used to being able to, like in all on the, on my Fuji, like if I'm in, if I set the picture profile on like, you know, A or S or P or whatever, you know, program or aperture priority in photo mode, it will hold between. But for all of my custom modes, whatever picture profile, log profile that I set, holds for all of my custom modes yeah so c1 through c7 because it has seven custom modes <laughs> i'll have everything set perfectly and i can just be like change it on the one and i know that like even though c4 is 6k 24 in f log 2 that my aperture priority is still going to be in classic chrome yeah and i don't have to worry about it yeah and i was so confused because this person was going to take photos and then use the camera later for video i was like oh yeah we'll just set s log 3 s gamut 3 cine tone in the video setting, and then she can flip it over to shutter speed priority and go to town. And it was still in the same picture profile <laughs> eight. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. 
Yeah. I don't understand. That's a weird, uh, weird choice. And maybe there's a menu option buried somewhere to change that. Who, who knows? Yeah. Does that camera have the newer menus? A7R4? No, the A7R4 had the same menus as A7 III. Oh, because oh, it was like the same, that was the same generation. Yeah, the A7R4 I think maybe even came out first. Because the, the R is usually ahead of the mm-hmm. non-R. Yeah, usually they release those first, so yeah. I guess the A7 III is newer. Huh. Neither of them shoot 10-bit, both of them only shoot 8-bit. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's going to be the worst footage out of all of them. Mm-hmm. Almost almost certainly. I think the A7R4, because it has it has that high megapixel sensor and that slower respeed, mm, probably. I think that one's going to be even worse oh, than the A7 III. Yeah. Yeah, but they're going to look the yeah. same, but... Well, I mean, yeah, it's... You know, we rag on Sony. I mean, I think their newer stuff is better, but yeah, those... Oh, it is for sure. I, I still see people talking about buying, like, a used A7 III, and, man, at this point, I would really try and get something with the 10-bit readout i just don't know how you cram all that i guess it's 8-bit but like even if you're shooting like 4k 30 it maxes out at 100 megabits per yeah. second and i guess maybe that's okay but it just feels like they're i don't know what they're doing to, if they're compressing it really really good somehow mm-hmm. or what but i don't know i would expect 4k 30 to be like 150 megabits per second I mean, it, if it's going to be like more have higher fidelity i think it ends up that it's fine if you have good light like, I actually think this footage is probably not going to be that bad because I think it's fine if you have good light. But, you know, the, the last time you edited footage from those cameras, it was in a dark situation. Yeah, this is going to be a very, a very different experience, I think. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We will see. Well, we've been talking for a while. Um, but before we go, do you want to cover any news things? Just kind of yeah, fill me, people in on what's going on. Let me throw some throw some news stuff down, even though this is probably not going to be uh, valid news because of our release schedule. Yeah, well, in... It's news to us. So. Okay. Are you familiar with Tamron? I, I think I've heard of them. Are you familiar with their 35 to 150 F2 to F2.8 zoom? I am. I wish they made it for Fuji. A, that would be pretty cool on Fuji. It would be wider mm-hmm. than the 50 to 140, and it would be faster than the 50 to 140 and yeah. longer. Yeah. That would be a really fun lens for Fuji. It would. Yeah. I'm just going to think about that for a little bit. Hold on. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. They're gonna they're gonna release it for Nikon Z mount. They announced it. Nikon so they, Nikon gets stronger. They do. I mean, now they have four Tamron lenses, yeah. where previously they had three. I mean, seeing that they're releasing it for Z mount kind of gives me hope. Like, you know, come on, guys, just pop a pop an X mount on there. Yeah, I mean that's that basically what they're doing. They're not redeveloping the lens. Yeah, they're. I mean, slowly but surely. It's taken them a year to come out with their trinity of zooms for Fuji, mm-hmm. and I would expect they're not going to stop. This is a full frame lens. I don't really see them dropping this for XF mount. Yeah, but I kind of want them to. Do you, do you happen to know what the um, what the filter diameter is? Oh, that's a great question. It's probably eighty-two millimeters. Well, I was just going to judge based on on that. How you know whether it was because some full frame lenses really aren't that big. And the Fuji 50 to 140 has a 72 millimeter filter thread. So, you know, if it's like 77, I mean, that'd be, that'd be fine. Yeah, I guess like it just, it's going to be expensive because it has more glass in it. And then everyone yeah. complains about, look at all this glass I'm not using and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's fast too. I mean, that would be a great lens. It sure would. I am looking for the specifications and this is just a huge pain. 82 millimeters. Oh, yeah, that's pretty big. Maybe yeah. not. You know, full frame, 77 to 82. No, it makes sense for full frame. I'm just saying I that would be a, a harder sell on yeah. X-Mount at that size. It would be a very a very big lens for yeah. APS-C. 
Yeah. And that's probably why they don't have it. You know, they have the 18 to a billion mm-hmm. lens. 18 but that's to a, a billion. That's an all everything zoom. Yeah. Not really a telephoto. So yep. anyways, I just, I like, I would like to see really fast APS-C lenses. I, I want some like F2 zooms. Mm-hmm. Sigma had that uh, 18 to 35, 1.8. That lens is ancient at this point. Yeah. And you know, like we haven't seen them updated, haven't seen them release it for XF mount. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something like that might be neat. I agree. Okay. Another one. Uh, whenever we were out there, we talked about the Fuji fan accessory. Yes. There's this other fan accessory that has recently been announced that you can like pre-order. And it's by this company called Ulanzi. Mm-hmm. I've heard of them. They make some other stuff. And uh, you can do it. It's, it's the same deal. It's a bat. It's a fan that can go on the back of your camera. You open up the screen. You put, the, put it where the screen was. If you have a flippy out screen, mm-hmm. you slap it on there. And it's a battery powered fan. And it's 20 bucks. That's pretty. 20 bucks. Yeah. That's, that's a totally. Because the Fuji one's $200. Exactly. Now the difference is that the Fuji one screws into the back of the camera. And it's powered by the camera. Whereas this one is battery powered and I think it just like sticks on, like it has adhesive or something. Yeah, I actually have no idea how it yeah, sticks something, on. Something like that. You but just slap it on there. Honestly, though, for 20 bucks, and I think that might, the 20 bucks may be a pre order price. I think it may be like 40 or 50 normally. That is correct. It is thirty nine ninety five. Even Okay, okay. Even if I have to spring for the thirty nine ninety five full price. I would probably buy that just to keep in my bag just in case. You know, if you did end up in a situation where it was where where your camera is overheating, that'd be a really nice thing to just have available. It has a 200 milliamp hour type C interface charger and it's suction cups to the back of your camera. Oh, okay. Perfect. I hope that works. Yeah. 58 grams. So, you know, nice. roughly the weight of a uh, Insta360 Go 3. <laughs> yeah, just about. No, it's like you twice just, the weight of that. Oh, is, uh, you can suction cup that to your camera. Yeah. <laughs> do they have a suction cup mount for the Insta360 Go? Uh, they have to. They probably do. That's yeah. what you need. Daniel, get a suction cup mount for it. <laughs> do it. You can suction cup it to all kinds of things. Like lick the suction cup and just slap it on stuff. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I would buy this fan thing, though. That sounds cool. Yep. All right. I got one more for you, and that is regarding the best lens mount. Which is L-mount. Of course. Leica has expanded the L-mount. And now we have Samyang and Astra Design in the L-mount alliance. Okay. I've heard of uh, Samyang. They're a Chinese manufacturer, South I believe. South Korean. South Korean. Okay. They make affordable lenses that are pretty good, I think. Yeah. They're basically broken on. Samyang and yeah. Rokinon. I mean, That's almost right. interchangeable. Yeah. There's some decent ones out there. There's a few good autofocus Samyang lenses. Uh, they have a good like 35, 1.4 pancake thing. It's not pancake, but that lens is good for Sony. And like, you know, they have this 12 millimeter 2.8 or 2.0 manual lens that's pretty good. Nice. Anyways, you know, Samyang, they make all kinds of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. What about Astro Design? Do they make anything I would have heard of? Uh, they're a Japanese brand. And I don't really know much about what they make. You know, it's it's kind of some camera stuff, some processing technologies, some like professional like 8K cameras, that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, but, you know, they, I think they make a few lenses probably for their stuff. And now they're in the Element Alliance. Well, this is good to see. I mean, you know, you can't help but draw the comparison to RF mount where they've, you know, Canon's completely closed off RF mount. Nobody else can make a autofocus electronic RF lens, it seems. And I'm I'm glad to see L mount going in a different direction. It seems like it's just getting stronger and stronger. I mean, we were really impressed when we looked at what lenses were available for it, and this is just going to expand that. So I think it's great. 
Yeah, me too. It's It kind of makes it so that these companies, they don't have to rely solely on themselves to like fully develop this mount. Mm-hmm. And then they can have let. I don't know, they have less resources, but they can focus their resources on making really cool cameras. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it, for me, when they first announced L mount with the Panasonic S1H and, and all that, to me, it was a detractor because there were only a couple of lenses available. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to buy a camera and then have to adapt everything. But now it's kind of flipped the other way where I've used some L mount glass. It's pretty good. And it seems like they have a lot of lenses available and I'd be interested in an L mount camera just because of that ecosystem. So yeah. It's, I think, it's interesting that they've turned that around. Yeah. I think it's fleshed out a lot. And I think it shows a lot of promise. Yeah. I am on astrodesign.co.jp right now. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they make mostly like just 8k utility cameras. I did find this one part that says 8k plus 5g. So oh. I think that they actually make these in Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> That's a deep cut. I wonder if anybody <laughs> listening to this podcast is going to get that reference. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? Send us an email if you understood that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, Lucas, you got anything else today? I mean, sure. We could probably talk about Fuji a little bit. We yeah. haven't really spent much time on that. <laughs> I think we covered that in enough detail. What about Peak Design? You want to talk about Peak Design some? You know, uh, it actually... Are you familiar with the brand Huckberry? No. <laughs> right now, for a limited time, they are re-releasing the Huckberry Peak Design 30-liter travel backpack. Oh, man. Which is made out of a very specific nylon, coated nylon type mm-hmm. product that Huckabee, ha- Huckabee Huckberry has. So, if you need something that's more waterproof or maybe a little more rugged. Or at least more hipster. Or in desert, coyote brown. This is pretty cool for a limited time. Yeah. Good to know. 30 liters, okay. You don't get the same, like side access and you it's your fault you asked i know that you want in but you asked you can only open the third liter from the back like you can't open the the top of it or like the front like I, how i can remove the divider in mine and i can access from yeah. the front or the back if i want to or i can use them as two separate pockets and i also have the side accesses on both sides so i feel like for the 45 liter i can pack it in a way where it's like i can access my gear from the top left yeah, side four different back, bags in there yeah well it's like four different locations where i'm like i packed it in a certain way that everything's just so and if i open up the left side i can get this thing and if i open up the top side i can get this thing which is how their everyday backpack works it's a very similar concept the 30 liter doesn't work like that it's like everything goes in the back and you have to open the back to get to it mm-hmm. kind of annoying but if it's a travel backpack and that's what you're using it for, this could be pretty good. Yeah, could be. Especially if you want that uh, desert tan. Yep. Also misleading, it's 25 liters in compressed mode and 35 liters in expanded mode. So it's it's not 30 liters in any configuration. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well-named product. Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and call there. That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you liked it, tell a friend so they can check it out too. You can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Camera Gear Pod. We'll be back with more next week.